This is episode 130 of the Relate podcast on life in casting with Emmy-nominated casting director Jill Trevelick. We are spending more and more time in the online world, looking through our screens and increasingly disconnected with those around us. But studies have proven that it's real-life meaningful relationships that bring us the most joy and happiness. It's all about human connection and conversing with people from a variety of backgrounds. Worlds change when eyes meet. So let's sit down and relate. I am your host, Patrick McAndrew, and welcome to another episode of Relate. Very excited to have you all tuning into this episode today. In this episode, we are taking an inside look into the world of casting. The casting department in any sort of project, whether it be for theater, television, or film, is really a critical part of the machine. Casting directors really work their magic when it comes to finding the right actors for the right roles. And I'm really excited to have someone on the show today who has years of experience working in this field. Her name is Jill Trevelick, and Jill Trevelick is a casting director based out of London who has worked on a wide variety of different projects. She has recently worked on the project Belgravia, Save Me, Sanditon, Curfew, The Victim, Jamestown, Apple Tree Yard, Power Monkeys, And she has also worked on none other than the world-famous Downton Abbey. And in this episode, we really talk the nitty-gritty when it comes to casting. Jill is kind enough to share her career, uh, how she got into the world of casting, and also what is entailed in creating an ensemble for a project. We talk a lot about her work, some favorite memories that she has had in different projects she's worked on, and we, of course, talk about Downton Abbey and what that experience was like for her during those years. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend who you think it might resonate with. Perhaps you know someone who is interested in getting in the entertainment industry, perhaps in casting. They will learn a lot from this episode. And we also hear, too, from Jill, I should say, before we dive in, about how casting has allowed her to really learn a lot about herself and about the world and how we connect as fellow humans. So be sure to tune into this episode in its entirety. So without further ado, let me please introduce our guest for today's episode of Relate, Jill Trevelyan. Very excited to have you here. Uh, you have really had this amazing career, and so much of what we talk about on this podcast, the Relate Podcast, is about the importance of human connection and meaningful relationships. Yeah. And I think that we who work in the entertainment industry, and especially casting directors, I think that casting directors really have a unique perspective when it comes to this is that 
we, we really have a unique take on what it means to connect as humans on really what it means to connect to our humanity, on what it means to develop empathy in today's world where sometimes it seems like there's a lot, a, a lot of a lack of empathy. And so I think that the entertainment world really has this powerful way of being able to tell stories mm -hmm. and to be able to convey different perspectives that have happened either in the past or the present or maybe even looking in the future as well. So with all of that said, I'm very excited to, to have you on my show and, and to be able to talk with our audience just about your career and, and about all the work that you're doing and also getting an inside look into who you are as a person as well. Gosh, all in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, we'll see what we could do. Um, yeah, but I, I, I guess we could just uh, first start by uh, sharing with our listeners just a little bit about yourself and mm -hmm. what was it that attracted you to the casting world? Um, it wasn't really planned, if I'm absolutely honest. Um, I did an English degree at Liverpool University and while I was there, um, I started going to the theatre, really, for the first time in my life. I wasn't really from a theatre background. You know, my parents would take me to the cinema, but not really to the theatre. And, um, and I just, round the corner from the university was the Everyman Theatre in Liverpool, which at the time, this is a long time ago now, at the time was the, like the coolest place in the city. And, and playwrights like Willie Russell were writing their new plays and they were being performed there and actors like Julie Walters and Bill Nye and Pete Postlethwaite and god I mean just an amazing cast were there so that was kind of my first introduction to theatre and I was just knocked out by it and any plans that I had to do my English degree and then go and be a teacher went completely out the window at that point so I got to know some of the people at the theatre and really while I was a student I was also kind of dabbling with the idea of doing journalism and so I was writing little arts articles I didn't get to review anything because somebody else had got that gig so I was a bit late to that but I was writing little arts articles and um and so they said oh we've got a job for you so I was very excited but the job turned out to be fly posting I don't know if you know what fly posting is in no, America no, what's, fly, what's posting fly posting is illegal <laughs> <laughs> and it's when oh, no. you send some poor benighted student out um, around the streets of Liverpool to stick up posters with wallpaper paste um, illegally because oh, okay. you actually kind of hired the sites, you know, uh, we did quite a lot of that in the 70s. And um, uh, so, yes, and then obviously if the police got in touch with them, they'd say, oh, we told that student not to do it. So anyway, that's how I got to know. <laughs> that was my first job. <laughs> and um, when I was leaving university, the theatre had been closed for a little while. They were being, it was being refurbished and they needed to attract a whole new staff. And one of the jobs that they advertised for was a press and publicity officer. And I thought, well, that sounded really cool. So I applied for that. And they said to me, you have absolutely no experience. <laughs> <laughs> I had to agree. I had none at all. Um, and so they said, come and be the box office manager. You can learn how to do that. And it'll be good because while you're doing that, we'll teach you to do all sorts of other things as well. And so that's how it started, really. So that's, that was my introduction. And for the next, uh, well, I was there for five years and ended up being the administrator there and then I went to then I came down to London and I uh, got a job at the National Theatre I did that for four years 
But I and where, and were you working in the box office there as well? No, 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 no. I was, I was the, the it was called the theater manager. So I was oh, responsible yeah. for um, the three house managers of the three theaters. And that was a, it was a crazy job to get so young, really. Um, but uh, I also kind of did other little admin sort of setting up little festivals inside the theater and helped with touring and things it was great I mean I learned an awful lot but I also learned that I was like I was really much happier in small organizations rather than great big national companies um I think partly because uh you know you're kind of in a smaller theater company you're much closer to the cast the actors you get to know people better whereas at the national theater I love going to the national theater it's a wonderful um wonderful place but you know, you almost kind of have to carry the schedule around with you to remember what's actually on in the theatres that night. Well, frankly, at the, month, at the moment, nothing, but, you know, normally. Um, so uh, I then left the National and went to work at the Unvic. Sorry, this is a long way around, but this is how I kind of got then into more into casting because in a lot of arts organisations, there's a really big dividing line between the people who do the creative stuff and the people who do the running it, the admin, the management, that kind of thing. And I had definitely been on the admin management side for nine years, I suppose, all through my 20s when I left university. And then when I went to the Young Vic, I, I took on what was a, a kind of administering role but the director I worked with at the time was the artistic director, this guy called David Thacker, um, really encouraged me to be involved in the creative side of the theatre of the, of as well. Really is, is a sort of producer, so that he would say, I really want to do a production of um, Ibsen's Ghosts, but you know we can't really afford it unless we find some actors who will attract audiences, because we're in London, you know, there's a lot of competition. So basically, that's that was what I did, really. So, <laughs> so it started so off with you, kind of you, attaching you, actors to leading roles in uh, plays we always wanted to do, but probably just for kind of limited runs of maybe even only six weeks or eight weeks, which was kind of attractive to a lot of people. So over those, I was there for three and a half years, something like that. But we we managed to persuade people like uh, Vanessa Redgrave and Tom Wilkinson and Helen Mirren and Bob Peck and, wow. you know, a, 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 you know, people, uh, Billy White, Little Patrick Stewart, they all came to this little kind of quite rundown theatre um, to, to do plays they'd always wanted to do. So that's how casting started for me. And then it kind of broadened a bit because, um, you know, once you start casting some of the parts, you want to cast all of it, really. And then visiting directors would come, they'd go back to their theatres and I would help them cast, you know, Hedda Gabler in Manchester or whatever. <laughs> and, um, and so I kind of realised over that time that I'd found something finally that was really satisfying to do creatively but also enabled me to use the other skills that I'd learned over, you know, the kind of organizational skills and the negotiating skills and budgeting skills, all that kind of thing, which, which was actually, I don't think many people realize that there is all that left brain stuff that you have to do as casting director as well. Um, so it, it became like the perfect job really for me for a while. Also, the other thing was, I realized before I even thought about doing casting as a, as a, 
as a job that I had this bizarre memory for actors' names <laughs> to the point where, I, not for anything else, just weirdly, actors' That's names. Funny. I can't even remember the names of plays or television shows or films they've been in half the time, but I could always remember actors' names. And, um, you know, to the point where if I was at a party, then I would get passed around from group to group saying, what was the name of the actor who was in so-and-so? And, -so? <laughs> you know, and I kind of, it always came to me. It was just bizarre. And watching television, my husband, he will say, who's that? Who's that? Who's that? And I <laughs> knew. So that was kind of helpful as well. So I found a kind of, you know, a marketable skill here. So that's how it happened, really. And having spent the first, gosh, how long ago? 12 years of my working life, sort of learning how to do things as I did them. I thought, right now, I'm going to actually train to do this now. I'm actually going to do this seriously. <laughs> and I'm, going to work, I'm going to work with the best people that I can find to work with and learn. And so over the next uh, three to four years, something like that, um, I was a casting assistant and I worked with, you know, the, the best casting directors, really. I was very lucky and I worked with probably... Well, there were two or three that I worked for quite of long spells with because we were working project by project, really. And then others that I did little bits and pieces for. So I probably worked with about um, hmm, nine, ten casting directors over that time, really. Wow. And that was that was a great experience in lots of ways um, because you kind of realise... I realised that I, I wasn't ever going to be able to make a living casting for the theatre in London. <laughs> And, well, so, and, and to kind of go back uh, on that, what, what do you think it was about yourself that, uh, I guess, was it the uh, associate producer or the uh, artistic director that you said you, you were working in more of this admin position as the theater yeah. manager? What do you think it was about yourself that, that they saw in you to be like, hey, can you help us out with finding think, actors? To be honest, when I got there, I think the director was clinically depressed because he had all these plans, all these things that he wanted to do, but it got to the point where he thought that the theatre would never be able to afford to be able to do them. So I suppose what I brought to it in initially was a kind of bit more of a commercial sense, in, in a way, really, rather than a wonderful, you know, I've just discovered this wonderful actor. It wasn't that. It was more that if we choose the right scale of play in amongst the the program that we're doing for young people with you know set text and all that kind of thing and Shakespeare and all the rest of it we can actually um because there was a sort of because <laughs> we didn't actually pay these actors a lot of money I think that was probably it there was a sort of wages policy where the actors pretty much all got I think they pretty much all got the same you know so people were definitely doing it for love rather than money um and now sometimes we we transferred the shows into the west end theaters from from our theater. and then obviously that was a whole different ball game and everybody got lots more money who you know the actors got lots more money but we were subsidized theater and, and not very well subsidized theater at the time it's um it's actually had a lot of money injected into that theatre since now and it's great and new building and everything but um yeah so so I think maybe it was that it was just a, a, a kind of never say die attitude <laughs> I really I really want to do ghost I really want to do who's afraid of Virginia Woolf and I say well let's do it you know but we've got to get big names and so you know you've got to be prepared to um you know take on some some really uh wild ideas here you know and 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 embrace the idea that you're going to be working with 
a dame or two, you know. <laughs> so, uh, it's, it's which amazing. went down well, as it turned out. So that was good. And and I guess when you were in your early days of casting, whether it be for theater or then when you transitioned to television, I definitely transitioned. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what what were some of those uh, memories or some of those things that you really enjoyed about some of the early projects that you worked on? Um. Right. I think the very very first job I did was. I mean, that was kind of very significant because it was great working with these fantastic casting directors who had been doing the job for as long as I have now, you know, and had an awful lot of experience. And more than anything, what seemed impossible to, to gain at the time was their knowledge of actors, because, you know, it takes time to build up a really kind of encyclopedic knowledge of, of actors. And I certainly don't claim to have that. Um, you know, <laughs> across the board. I think I've got a pretty good knowledge of British actors. Um, but, you know, I, I would look at, at look at some of the casting directors I was working with and think, I will never know as many actors as they do, <laughs> ever. And so to go from being a casting assistant to being a casting director, to kind of, the hardest thing is to persuade yourself that you're ready to do it. Um, and in my case, while, while I had been being a casting assistant, I'd also had two babies um, in amongst all of that. So wow. I, it got to the point where I actually couldn't afford to be a casting assistant anymore because if I was employing somebody to look after the children, then I had to be earning you know, a little bit more money, really. So it was partly everybody saying to me, you should do it, you should go on your own. It was partly financial and <laughs> it was partly that the very last casting director I worked with um who was sort of kind of slowing down a bit really in terms of her career um that she didn't really want to do too much more she started kind of sending work my way which was incredibly good of her um and so the first thing I did was actually through a contact of hers and somebody I'd spoken to while I was her assistant, just on the phone, helping them with something. And, um, and it turned out to be a very significant job. It involved, it was written by um, Jez Butterworth, who nobody knew who Jez Butterworth was at the time, who's now written The Ferryman, Jerusalem, you know, brilliant, brilliant writer. Yeah. And it was directed by um, a director who's won loads of awards since called Mark Munden. And um, he, it was his first drama because he'd come from documentaries. So we were put together, we were all kind of real rookies, really. And um, this terrific producer who's sadly no longer with us, who just liked giving people who had something to prove um, a, a job, you know, and, and that's kind of quite rare and, um, and really uh, cherishable when it comes along. It takes a lot of bravery for people to do that, I think. Um, and the main challenge of it was to find a, a young actor, sort of young 16, 17 year old boy, who had been inspired, Jez had been inspired by um, the Truffaut film, Les Quatre Sans Coup, and a French um, actor called Jean Pierre Léo, um, who at the time is younger. I mean, he's like, I don't know, 11, 12, probably in that film. And so that was my, I had to find a kind of British equivalent of that. So I just searched like crazy and, and 
uh, came upon um, 17 year old Hans Matheson, who was just perfect for the role. So that, I remember that whole period really well of, of doing that and um, finding him and auditioning and, and actually other young guys who I met at the same time, like there's a terrific actor who, I don't know how, how well you know him, but you would recognize him, but he was, who we also shortlisted who's called Daniel Mays, who's been in things like Line of Duty and that kind of thing. And, and you know, really has a significant career. And um, he was about 17 at the time. And uh, he went on to RADA um, and has done very well since. So, so yeah, that's exciting. I mean, I think I've continued to find that search for young actors and enabling them, facilitating them to kind of really move on with their careers very exciting really um uh, you know or just giving somebody an opportunity to really establish themselves in a in a leading role is is uh just great to see great to see well it's amazing too to really look back at all the work you've done you've worked on so many different tv series <laughs> and mini series and it's amazing. And so it's, <laughs> it, well, it's, it's, it's great. It, it really is this amazing portfolio of work throughout your career. And so many casting directors that I've talked to have said that a big reason why they love being a casting director is that they love actors. Yeah. And just for, based on the last, what, what you were just saying, I would, I would guess it's the same thing with you and yes and yes. I, I would I would love to hear uh, why it is that you enjoy working with actors well um I just find them generally very interesting people and also very the best actors are um well they're very good actors of course but they seem to be very emotionally open and available um you know very often you can establish a connection with with people like that who are kind of generally quite self-aware not maybe self-aware is not the best but quite emotionally quite brave as well i think the best actors are people who can really investigate the psychology of a character by relating it to their own experience in a, in a quite a profound way and probably quite a very instinctive way. I'm sure if, if you were asking that question of Judy Dench, she wouldn't come up with a very intellectual reason how, how she does it, but she's just incredible. She's just incredible, isn't she? Because she just actually absolutely inhabits a character. I find that quite magical to watch that. And there are times when you're, because as a casting director, you're in, auditions with actors in the room with a director hopefully usually with a director and uh, as the casting director you're, you're generally reading in you know with the actor giving them their cues and lines and so forth um so it's not that ideal it's not an ideal situation for an actor by any means you know they're reading with a non-actor for a start i mean over the years my readings improved but i'm not an actor <laughs> i don't i don't give them everything that an actor would do in terms of eye contact and all that kind of thing um, but, you know, there are so many times when I've literally got goosebumps uh, and because I kind of sort of weirdly feel that I'm in the room with the character. And that's quite magical, I think, quite exciting. 
Um, and and yeah, quite great. And 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 now, of course, at the moment, we're not in rooms with actors at the moment, so everybody is having to self-tape, and it's all on Zoom. And and it's I find that really difficult. I mean, I you bet, know, yeah. because it, it means that uh, you know. For instance, tomorrow we'll be sending out um, scripts to probably like 20 actresses to read for a part um, because we can, you know, we've got the time to do it. And um, normally I would be kind of organizing, you know, days and probably maybe seeing, I don't know, 10 actresses, you know, spread over two days meeting people for other roles. But but somehow, you know, you kind of think the director will say, what about so-and-so? Well, yeah, let's get them to self-tape, you know, because you kind of feel, why not? But it's sort of all, it's not the same as having somebody there that you can interact with and help and guide and try different things. And I love actors who are playful and will try different things. And but also I think it's important that actors come into a room or come in, or approach something having made some decisions about how they want to play the role. But that's when it gets very, casting gets very interesting because you talked at the very beginning about telling stories and it's extraordinary how the story that you're telling, even with the same script, can change depending on what the actor brings to it because it, 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 you find different things in it. Um, it's quite subtle sometimes, but suddenly you'll see a different side to a character, a different way of playing something, which is really interesting, you know. And as casting directors, we're not the people who decide ultimately what the story is. We're kind of the people who enable the directors, producers, writers to um, to to test out things, I suppose, really, and 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 make decisions subsequently, you know. And I guess as a casting director, for those listeners who are tuning in who might not be as familiar with the process, yeah. is it really that you're going to a director, uh, the writer, maybe the producer, getting a feel for who or what type of person that they're looking for for a specific role, and then you go out and look for, I guess, a handful of those type of people and kind of vet a, bunch of, a long list of people and <laughs> narrow down that list so that it's a smaller list for them? Basically, that's right. Yes, it is. And um, yes, some some scripts are very self-explanatory. Other scripts are, you know, it's just a tone that sometimes you're looking for. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I love working with writers who have some knowledge of actors. That's That can be a quick, quick way through, you know. I'm working with um, a couple of writers at the moment on series that we're doing next year. One's David Farr, who was a theatre director, and the other's Joe Barton. And they, they're great, both of them, because you really can... They don't know... Joe particularly will always say, I actually don't know some of the people on this on this list, but he'll always, you know, look at showreels and things. But um, he, he's just able to articulate really well you know what's the most important thing and how likable this character has to be and how comedic ability is really important to him you know and it, it all makes perfect sense but it's just sometimes you know that the, all those ingredients are really important but it's sometimes hearing the writer or director emphasize what the kind of most important characteristics are because that gives you a real sense of how how the piece is going to go.
Yeah, it's really amazing how much you do, or I, I, it's really amazing how much casting directors do in general when putting together a production, a, a television series. <laughs> it, it really, uh, you're you're this like uh, amazing puzzle maker uh, of putting together this this puzzle of sorts yeah, to to, sure. to make something work. It's I think the way I kind of do it is I suppose you've got to have an instinctive feeling about what are the essential qualities that people bring to something but I think beyond that what I tend to do is when I'm thinking about a script usually for a character there are maybe two or three really significant scenes or significant even just moments and if it's actors that I already know because you know you get to a certain when you're casting the leads in something obviously people get to a certain level in the profession where they don't even audition you know you, you're just talking about you know people based on their body of work and what you know so i try and imagine i try i sort of do my own version of the film or the episode or whatever with those actors in the in the <laughs> in the scenes you know <laughs> and just do my own imaginary thing and it, sometimes it's very very clear to me and sometimes it's just a sort of sense that this actor will be comfortable in this or not comfortable in this um but then the, you know sometimes you're looking for a young there's a young role and so you just see lots of people and and see how they see how they how it works you know sometimes you know, you imagine that something's going to possibly really work and it doesn't quite. And other times it's like, wow, <laughs> you know, that really works. And I had never kind of quite thought it might, but it does. That's great. You know, so um, that's good. I mean, and we do do kind of chemistry reads and things, but oh God, I always find that when you're trying to cast leads and maybe it's an ensemble, but there's sort of maybe six, eight, ten characters, it was quite important that some of them kind of work well together. So many times I've set up days of auditions where, you know, the actors come in and they work with other actors and with the best will in the world, because of people's availabilities or whatever, you end up seeing what actors can do given the right conditions and with other actors to work with. But so often you actually end up casting people who never really met. <laughs> <laughs> because they're on different days or whatever you know so but it still seems to work out okay so right, right. Yeah. yeah well what, what's amazing too is you know talking you're talking about how you know you're building these ensembles of maybe six eight to ten actors oh sometimes more <laughs> I, well i was just gonna say i would love to talk about your work on downton abbey oh yes because this show I, I feel like I've seen a good amount of, of tele television in, in my day. Still a lot I need to see, but Downton Abbey is one of those shows where every single member of the cast you feel something for. And <laughs> every single character I was so invested in and so interested in. <laughs> and yes, while I know obviously a large part of that is is the writing of uh, Julian Fellows. Ooh, yeah casting is definitely another big part of that so what was the process like for you casting this show obviously yeah, I remember I'm, I'm, it very well <laughs> yeah I, I'm sure I'm sure at the moment you had no idea how big it was going to become with millions no, of people watching I it didn't. I genuinely didn't um I knew Gareth Neem who runs Carnival Pictures because I'd worked on um 
uh, something that they'd done a single film about Enid Blyton actually that uh, we got Helena Bonham Carter to, to do um, and that was not long before so I knew Gareth through that and also Gareth had worked at the BBC and I'd done some things so we kind of encountered each other then and uh, he's got in touch and said um, I've got a script that I'd like you to read um, it's uh, Upstairs, downstairs meets Gosford Park. <laughs> so I kind of said, yeah, I'd like to do that. That sounds good. And at the time, there wasn't a great deal of period drama happening here because we were, we were casting this, I think, 2009, 2010. So to be honest, it was just after the financial crash. And, and you know, this was a big, big project that um, obviously NBC put quite a lot of money in because it was like a bigger and more expensive event than BBC ITV were really commissioning at the time. And we're just kind of just before Netflix, Amazon and all those kind of things. So to be honest, that was a huge advantage because um, to actually pull that cast together now, um, right across the board and options, so many really rather good actors with the, um, the number of, kind of platforms there are now for actors to be cast in would have been would be pretty difficult now actually um wow. and uh but at the time um it it was it was great <laughs> we, <laughs> we we pretty much got all our first choices so that was good but the the process was um was was lovely because i was working with um brian percival who was the original the lead director and Brian and I had worked together before and we share many things. The most important being that we are both super fans of Liverpool Football Club and he's from Liverpool and I'm from nearby as well. So that was all great. And so we bonded over the years before and since. But we get on very well and we have the same kind of tastes. And um, uh, Julian, I had to meet Julian, um, so I went to meet Julian, that was all great, and um, he said, would you like me to tell you, uh, is there anything, any questions that you want to ask me? I'd already, obviously I'd read the first script, which was a pilot script, was about 90 minutes. It was a stunningly good script in every way, I thought. Not least because he introduced over 20 characters, and you were never confused as to who they were. You always knew exactly where they fitted and the hierarchy both above and below stairs. And it's quite, a, quite an undertaking that. And I felt I really knew those characters as well, very, very quickly. Um, so anyway, I had my meeting with Julian and he said, um, are there any questions you'd like to ask me? And I said, I, I don't have any specific questions, Julian, but I just don't feel that I know enough about the background of some of these characters, like how do you get to be a first footman and all that kind of thing. So I then sat there for two hours while he just told me basically the history of country houses in England, wow. where these all, all these people came from, what they're likely, you know, because it was downstairs, which was, I mean, I sort of knew how you came to be a member of an aristocratic family, basically you were born into it, but I didn't really know how you came to be a housekeeper or a butler or, or, or what the, you know, the tasks of all these people were. So that was, that was very interesting. That was my introduction to Downton Abbey really. And um, 
Yeah, I mean, the very, very first day of casting, we met Dan Stevens and Michelle Dockery that afternoon, which was great. Wow. So that, <laughs> was, that was the very first day. That was the very first day. Wow. And Brian didn't know Dan at all, didn't know his work at all. So Dan comes in, auditions, goes out, and Brian just said, well, he's perfect. I don't need to see anybody else. So that was that part cast. <laughs> um, Michelle, we also thought was perfect, but there was some pressure on us to see a few more actresses. So we saw three or four others and then went back to Michelle. Yep, done, sorted everybody happy. So that was a good start. And it kind of went on from there, really. It was great. The hardest part to cast were two parts that were really the, the last parts that we cast. Um, one was Bates, who's a oh, friend wow. of yours. Yeah. Now that was an interesting one because Julian had seen um, Brendan in North and South, which actually I had worked on. And, uh, and so he'd written that part and always imagined Brendan playing it. But ITV, who were the commissioners, were unsure about Brendan only because he was in another period drama on the BBC and there was a slight possibility that he would have been in both at the same time. So we went around the houses. I think, I mean, I think I had a list of about 70 actors on this list, you know, and finally we had a conference call with everybody at ITV and persuaded them that please, you know, having gone around the houses, please, could we go back to Brent Court? <laughs> <laughs> <I> said, yes. <laughs> so that was kind of difficult. And, um, and the other part that was one of the last that we cast was um, Edith. That was Laura Carmichael. Yes, yes. And that was kind of tricky because sort of Michelle fell into place. Jessica Brown Finley, I had met um, for something else I'd been doing and she hadn't got it. But I remember thinking, oh, I must remember her for something. And then she came in and got that role. And she was really, really inexperienced. I mean, she was basically at art school when I met her. Um, and she hadn't done very much, but if you remember in the first series, Sybil was a part that kind of gradually grew as the series went on. Yes, and yes. Again, she kind of, you know, she was able to sort of find her feet. And, um, and I remember being at the read through for the, for series two, uh, which by then she's a very established character. I remember thinking, wow, she has grown as an actress so much. This is fantastic. Um, I suppose, Hugh Bonneville was an early, an early, um, somebody we, we clinched kind of pretty early and, um, well, well, Maggie Smith, what can I say? I mean, <laughs> you know, she was not originally on the wish list, not because we ever thought that she wouldn't be perfect, but because Maggie Smith did not do series television, you know, and, um, so we hadn't actually kind of got as far as deciding who to offer to. But the weekend before we were sort of all going to get together, there was a report in the press that the BBC were going to revive Upstairs Downstairs. <laughs> and that Eileen Atkins, who was one of the original writers, of course, and creators of Upstairs Downstairs, was going to be in it. And so we were kind of miffed, I have to be honest, we were really miffed that the BBC should do this because they knew that Downton Abbey was, was going to happen, you know, it had been announced. And it just seems such a spoiler technique, you know, so we thought, I think it kind of really made us think, right, okay, you're going to have Eileen Atkins. <laughs> <laughs> well then. <laughs> you're going to go for Maggie Smith. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. 
And actually, she did know Julian and she did know Liz Truebridge, the producer, because they'd worked together on something else. And um, so uh, I remember us thinking naively, my God, we get Maggie Smith, everybody will jump aboard. Well, of course, Maggie is a lot cannier than that. So she kind of said, yeah, yeah, possibly, possibly. Tell me who else is going to be in it. So basically, she waited to see who else was going to be there. <laughs> and then I mean what a day when she said yes that was fantastic oh my gosh I the, it's it, it's so amazing just the the chemistry between all of the characters and, and also how their stories evolve throughout all the series as well <laughs> yeah, well, like, you know Julian said a really wise thing at the first read-through um which was hilarious by the way because it was a massive read-through and uh Sophie McShearer, who plays Daisy, of course, and she, she, I don't think she'd ever been to London before, let alone been in something like, you know, this kind of read-through. And I remember she kind of came into the room and I, and I saw her and I thought, she's not going to know anybody. So I went to meet her and say hello. And I walked around the table where everybody's names were as she went around. And I didn't know where her seat was. So we ended up walking almost three sides of this kind of four-sided table. And um, as we went past, I remember she was looking at these names as we went past <laughs> and kind of going, oh my God, oh my God. And then she had, for some reason, somebody had sat her next to the head of ITV. So, I mean, what, a, what an introduction. So poor old Sophie. Yeah, so that was quite a day, but she was just amazing. I mean, she just came in and she just nailed it in the audition, I remember. But... Um, yeah, sorry, I've lost my train of thought now. What was I going to say? Uh, yes, what, what Julian said at the read-through. He said, you know, you all must take responsibility for your characters because I want you to think about this series as being about your character who has a life when you're not in this script, but it's all going on. And then from time to time, the camera is on you because you, you, you know, it's the, the part of your story that we're actually focusing on. Um, and I think, you know, that cast really took that to heart. And, um, and then, of course, once you've established those characters, then as a writer, then you write for the actors as well. So, for instance, Rob James Collier, um, Thomas, the evil footman, who became less evil, <laughs> I went on, I think, um, uh, he was meant to be sacked at the end of series one. So we never even wow. But But... Um, within, gosh, three or four weeks of filming, certainly not more than six weeks of filming, um, everybody just realised, oh no, we can't, we can't write him out. We can't write him out. <laughs> so instantly it was like, um, Rob, will you sign an option? <laughs> Which he said, yes. <laughs> so that was good. Um, but uh, yeah, no. I mean, sometimes just sort of magical kind of that was a kind of that was a strange one because it really did sort of gel in a way in a way that you hope but you know I remember going to visit them on set right at the end of the shoot um and it was actually when they were filming the very very last scenes of the first series and it's a kind of garden party outside Downton and the very end of it, Hugh Bonneville announces that the First World War has been declared. And it was a 
beautiful sort of late summer day and and the light was perfect and you know everything was just working brilliantly but I remember watching a scene that Siobhan Finneran did with Elizabeth McGovern and just thinking wow but it's not it you know they had kind of morphed into these characters it didn't seem to be I'm particularly thinking about Siobhan there didn't seem to be any part of the character and the actress that hadn't just completely welded itself together, which was, um, which is amazing, really. Yeah. It's, a, it's incredible when those moments happen that are just, it almost feels magical in a sense yeah. Yeah. where, yeah. where all, where all <laughs> these working parts, come, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where all these working yeah. parts come together. And, yeah. and I, I was going to ask you what, what, what was it like working with a writer like Julian who has developed these such elaborate characters, but I'm sure it's so much more than just the writing as well. It's, it's the, the acting and, and the costumes and, and really just everything oh, yeah. that, that goes yeah, into play. Really, I mean, it's probably good that I'm the age I am because Julian's references for characters tend to be actors like Kenneth Moore, you know, and now Kenneth Moore was kind of a leading light of British cinema in the 1950s, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember watching black and white Kenneth Moore films, you know, on television when I was growing up. But if you said that to the next generation of casting directors, they'd be Googling, you know. So sometimes I kind of think that's quite helpful that I'm not that much younger than him. <laughs> <laughs> so I do understand what he's talking about, you know, because I remember when we cast um, Charles, he, he, Kenneth Moore is one of Julian's favourite actors. So Kenneth Moore comes up quite frequently. But I remember the first time it was um, in relation to, I'm really, this is terrible, I can't remember the character, but the actor Charles Edwards and he's, he married, um, Edith, and then, oh no, he didn't actually marry, but they didn't actually marry, but then he was killed in Germany. Do you remember? He was the newspaper editor. Oh, uh, yeah. yes, yes. And he said, you know, I, I want somebody who's kind of has that Kenneth Moore thing. And I kind of, what I took from that was like, very British, quite upper class, very, very decent, and a real gentleman, you know, so, so it's that kind of thing. So it's sort of, we, you know, we get on fine. Right. Well, you, you could definitely tell just from the way you're speaking about it is that, that there's that collaboration there, which I well, think we're is, collaborating you know. at the moment because I'm working on the next Downton film at the moment, which we're going oh, to. Oh, nice. This is yeah. exciting. Yes. I can't tell you anything about it, of course, other than the fact that we will be filming in March. Wow. Oh my gosh. That is very exciting. <laughs> and the, even the, the last film that, that came out, I guess, I guess it was last year, uh, yeah. was, was also amazing. I thought it was a great extension of the, the story from the series. Oh, good. Uh, I, so, did, I mean, we, we didn't really know how well it was going to go because there was quite a gap trying to get everybody back together again. It took quite a long time. Um, and, um, you know, you just don't know how well a television series will translate to, to film. But to be honest, it was so commercially successful. <laughs> I'm, I'm not that surprised it's going to be another one. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's so exciting. Hmm. I, I would love to talk about, I guess, your, your personal experience being a casting director. It's obviously a huge part of your life. It, it's been your career for so many years now. Well, what do you think that you've learned about yourself through being a casting director? Gosh, I've had to be patient. I think I've learned patience to a certain extent. 
because you know i think um it can be quite the whole decision making process can be very speedy or it can be really corporate i would say you know there are many the whole rise of the number of exec producers that there can be on projects now means that uh you know the whole process can be quite long and drawn out and i'm not that good at long and drawn out and so i um yeah that can be frustrating particularly at times when you know there's a lot of competition for you know leading actors at the moment so that i do find difficult and um so i've just had to learn not to fire off emails <laughs> you know i think quite often i kind of think okay i could write something now but i'll wait till tomorrow and then sometimes things resolve themselves anyway so that can be kind of frustrating um and i discovered that i am quite impatient <laughs> but i have to kind of you know restrain myself um so i suppose i've discovered that i suppose um i don't know really i think i think i'm a little bit odder than i thought i was and i think that uh, that the fact that i'm able to live in my imagination as much as i am and see these characters there's something magical about create seeing characters from the written word but there's also something slightly strange about it and um i think sometimes i can be in denial about other things that are going on in my life and concentrating on this fictional world <laughs> so it's making me sound deranged but i'm not deranged but so that i suppose um because i always thought that i was more practical and sensible um which i'm not <laughs> not so much um I've also I think I've also realized over the years that I am a bit of a control freak and that I'm uh I mean you know people like working with me um I'm not horrible to people who work with me in my office <laughs> but I think it's a certain kind of person who likes uh likes boundaries you know that you know enjoys working as a as a number 2 works best because otherwise i think i'm probably a bit too organizing <laughs> <laughs> which could be which could be a good thing could be a good thing yeah yeah it could be a good thing could be a good thing yeah Oh, that's great. And, and uh, you know, I know we're, we're going to conclude soon, but for those people who are listening in, who might be thinking about a career working in casting or, or even for actors who are, we have a lot of actors who tune into the show. Well, what would your words of advice be to both people who are looking to enter into the casting world and then also to actors who may want to, you know, really make a name for themselves in this industry? Well, uh go let's do the casting bit first because that's a bit more straightforward, isn't it, really? I suppose um I can only really speak for the UK really now because I don't I'm not so clear about how it works in America, but I th- I really think you have to do your probation really as a casting director. You really have to learn 
by working with a casting director as an assistant. Um, there's, a, there's the Guild of Casting Directors, the CDG in, in the UK. And uh, so there are full members of that, there are probationary members of that who are assistants, assistant level. Um, and they do a great job of advertising vacancies and all that kind of thing. I mean, obviously, it's an incredibly difficult time to be trying to start out now. Though I, I, I don't think that it's ever at the easiest of times to do it because I'd worked in theatre administration. Um, I remember being advised by a casting director who I ended up assisting a while later to not even think about going into casting at the time. <laughs> Because she said, there's, you're, there's just not enough work. There's just not enough work, honestly. She said, if you can think of something else that you want to try and do, think of something else, you know. So you've got to be fairly determined, I think. But I mean, I think that's true for, for many things as a casting director. And just be, just, just do a lot of research. You, you, you have to decide whether it's a job for you because it isn't a nine to five job you know, you're constantly clocking actors. I mean, I used to watch foreign films a long time ago thinking, oh, I can just relax and I don't have to worry about it. Now that, that's not even true because we're all casting, you know, internationally as well now. So you, you're constantly kind of feeding the beast, <laughs> as it were, really. Right. So it is a kind of a way of life. Um, but having said that, I would, strongly recommend that anybody who works in this business has another life as well you know a personal life as well that gives them something you know gives them support and uh, somebody to take care of as well and you know all of that because I do remember working for a couple of casting directors who had poured all their sense of themselves into the job and I think that's are going to fundamentally probably not be enough ultimately um you know and we don't carry on doing this forever either you know we all have a shelf life so um yeah have some balance you know though it, it you know i i'm great i'm a great one for saying we should all have a work-life balance the work-life balance in if you want to be a casting director is not that great but hopefully you'll like what you're doing so much and you won't find that, you know, watching a lot of films and television and going to the theatre a lot, because I do go to the theatre a lot, um, is too much of a, you know, a penance. So you say that to a lot of people and they say, that's not work, you know, but actually it is, it is, it really yeah. is. Um, so yeah, like actors, enjoy actors, respect actors, respect the, what actors bring, you know, there's nothing worse than people who don't respect actors, because without actors we are, you know, irrelevant, aren't we? We, were, we had no function. Um, and uh, I, you know, if you're the kind of person who wants security in your life, it's maybe not for you, but if, you, if you're somebody who likes new challenges all the time, it's not really a job that, even though the process can be similar, it's not a job that gets boring because every project you do is so different and you're working with a different team. So that kind of keeps you you know, from getting um, bored, really. It's not boring. Basically, <laughs> it's stressful, but it's not boring. Right. Um, so that's what I would say about casting. Acting, wow. Well, you know, um, what can I say? There are, you know, I see people come out of drama school every year who are technically, you know, good actors, but 
they don't have something which makes them distinctively different or they don't have that kind of memorable spark or whatever it is and so it's a cruel profession and sometimes you see people who just don't get the breaks and actually in other circumstances would have done very very well so there's a point at which i think you can't beat yourself up and there is a lot of you know luck involved very often um i think yeah it just we're in a time, I mean, you know, we're in, we're in a totally atypical time at the moment. I can't really talk about this because it's just so bizarre and we don't know how long it's going to go on for. But right. in normal circumstances, I, I do think actors now have the ability to at least generate work sufficiently to use as a kind of marketing tool or that, or that agents can use as a marketing tool for them, you know, quite apart from the fact they're going to develop as actors by working. So I don't think there's much excuse for an actor not being able to put together some sort of a showreel these days. Um, now in the UK, we have Spotlight, which is a, the database, which is massive, you know, and, and, and really, if you're serious about being an actor, then you've got to subscribe and, and be a part of that. But that does enable you to put your showreel, upload your showreel onto that. It doesn't have to be broadcast it doesn't have to be something that's broadcast or been at a film festival or anything like that but it does need to be broadcast quality you know being filmed in a rehearsal room ain't going to cut it it's just going to look a bit amateurish so i think that's something that that you can do and just just in the same way that i say for for casting directors just inform yourself you know um uh, you know go to classes um you know just just you know just do everything that you can without being annoying to people. Don't be annoying to, don't keep, you know, cold calling casting directors. <laughs> <laughs> if you've got something to say, you know, that if you're, you know, I've got my new, I'm in a series and it's now, you know, yeah, sure. I don't mind getting those kind of notifications. But I suppose ultimately for actors is get yourself a good agent, isn't it? I mean, that is the number one thing. Without a good agent who knows how to present you, when to present you, who to present you to, it's tough. It's really tough. I think. Right. Well, Jill, thank you so much for taking the time. I really, I really appreciate not only you taking the time to be on the show, but I also really appreciate the work that you're doing in this thank world you. and the care that you take as a casting director in all of the various projects that you've worked on. It's been so yeah. great to hear about your experiences. Well, that's, that's very nice because sometimes you feel in these kind of circumstances that what you do is a little trivial, you know, compared to being a, you know, a nurse or something <laughs> or paramedic you know but, but yes well we all do what we do don't we what we can yeah do. you're you're real as a casting director you're really playing a huge role in elevating and creating stories that really touch people's hearts and i know that that sounds maybe sort of cheesy but it's true it really yeah. is and and so so i i really appreciate that uh just speaking from myself and before heading out, I'm just wondering if you could share with our listeners where they could find out more information about you and your work. Um, well, I don't have a website, so that's not, not going to help. But if you have a look at um, IMDb, that's got all my credits on it. So anything that you might want to investigate from that, you would, you would find on there. Great. Well, I'll make sure to include the... All kinds of stuff online, obviously, you know. 
Yeah. Well, I'll make sure to include the link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, li- so listeners out there, I highly recommend checking that out. A <laughs> uh, wide variety of great projects in there. So uh, Jill, one last question before yeah. we head out. How can we as a society better relate to one another? Gosh, what a question. You should have warned me. I kind of, kind of yeah, ending with a bang. <laughs> um, I think, I think, I suppose I was taught from quite a young age um, to try to see things from other people's point of view. So, you know, to develop your empathy. Um, and I suppose that would help a lot in, in a kind of more tribalized societies that we seem to be moving into. But on the other hand, I, I kind of think a kind of moral value, you know, when you, <laughs> I can't help but think when you have, you know, the leaders of the free world who lie, <laughs> and I'm not just talking about your country, I'm talking mine as well, who lie incessantly and with impunity, you know, the, those kind of moral standards are slipping and, 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 and that breeds apathy and distrust. And um, yeah, I think we should vote intelligently for people who you know bring leadership and those kind of moral qualities and actually you feel are doing something for you know in the for the public good rather than for their own sense of ego right great well we'll leave our listeners with that then (laughs) it's it's great (laughs) so uh jill thank you so much again okay Thank you for joining us for this episode of Relate. You can let me know your thoughts on this episode by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving me a review. Or if you have the Anchor app, feel free to call in and leave a voicemail. I would love to hear from you. You can support this podcast by clicking the link in the show notes. Thank you so much again for tuning in, and I'll catch you all in the next episode.